Okay, good morning. Uh, there was an art contest a number of years ago in an elementary school in East Texas, and one of the uh, winning drawings was very unusual Christmas drawing. The little, little boy had drawn uh, three men who were coming to give gifts to the baby Jesus, and on the side of the picture was a fire truck, and the principal wanted to know what was up, so uh, he decided he would interview the child that drew the picture, and he said, son, it's a beautiful picture. Um, can you explain it to him? He talked it through with him for a minute, and then he said, well, what's the fire truck on the far side? And the boy said, well, the Bible says in his East Texas accent that the three wise men came from afar. Now, I think some of y'all may need to catch up with that joke. Okay, so this morning we're talking about the uh, three magi, or the four magi, we don't know how many, who came to visit Jesus. And before we get started, I've got two quick uh, commercial announcements. One, uh, this is the end of the year, and it's a great time for you to give to your favorite charity. And if your favorite charity is not Gateway, then it's a good time to give to a really good charity. Uh, Gateway is a giving church, a, a give first church. We give first because God gave first. And here, here's how it works. When we give first, we honor God. When, when we save second, we build wealth. And when we live on the rest, we learn contentment. So Gateway is a give first church. And this is the time of the year when we go in on that, when, when we give. Uh, second commercial announcement is uh, next week we're going to have 24 hours of prayer beginning at noon on Friday and we'll end at noon on Saturday, uh, New Year's Day. We're going to pray out uh, 2021 and we will pray in 2022 and uh, hopefully God will give us a better year next year than he did this past year. And I'd love for you to join us if you're interested. Uh, grab an hour. You can go on mygateway.life uh, to sign up for an hour to pray with us. Okay, speaking of prayer, um, let me kick us off this morning with prayer because we're going to talk about the Magi. Father, we pray that you would um, speak to us today as we, as we contemplate these foreigners that came and uh, offered their worship to Jesus. We pray that you would inspire us, all of us who are listening, we pray that you would inspire us to give our worship as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now the story of the Magi is a sweet part of the Christmas story, of course, and for some people it is their favorite part of the Christmas story, but this is one of those stories that has, surprisingly, it has rich and profound theological significance. There are lessons that spill out of the story of the Magi that should affect how we think and how we live. So this morning we're going to look at six truths that, that fall out of the story of the Magi, and today is just going to be a contemplation for us. As we get nearer and nearer to Easter, let's think about six truths that spill out of the story of the Magi. Truth number one, Jesus is to be worshipped not just by Jews, but by all peoples. Now this is one of the key takeaways from Matthew, and I believe it's a critical part of what the Holy Spirit wants us to hear as well. Listen to verses 1 and 2 of what Demetrius read for us this morning. Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. 
The word magi is uh, sometimes translated, you may know, the wise men. It translates the Greek word magos. And that word literally means any person well-respected in the ancient non-believing world for their knowledge in the occult arts, especially astrology, medicine, and dream interpretation. So these particular men were probably magos from the king of Persia, from the Persian kingdom. To Matthew's mind, this must have been absolutely startling when he heard about this. I mean, this rattles the idea of Jewish exceptionalism, doesn't it? The presence of these guys made it clear that Jesus was for everybody and to be worshipped by everybody. And this is one of the greatest surprises about Jesus to the Jews of his day. Their Savior would be the Savior of the world and worshipped by the whole world. By the way, this should also be a reminder to us, he's, he's not only good news for us, he's good news for everyone, and, and he's, he deserves to be worshipped by everyone. But this is why we tell people about Jesus. He is to be worshipped by all peoples. Truth number two, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. All right, if you know much about the Jesus story at all, you know this. And it's made clear throughout the whole of his story, but but. It's surprising that this fact shows up from the very beginning of his life. Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. It's also interesting to me that Herod recognized it. Listen to verses 3 and 4. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him, and that probably means the court and all those around him. When he called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Uh, So the Magi, let's notice, the Magi had come looking for the king of the Jews. But Herod asks his uh, advisors about the uh, origins of the Messiah. So what it looks like here is that Herod has put two and two together and he thinks, wow, this might be four. By way of review, it had been the expectation of Jews for centuries that a hero would come to lead them and to save them. Uh, They had been told this repeatedly by the prophets who claimed to be speaking for God. So if this is all true, think about the implications of this. Uh, Jeff DeJani is one of the leaders in our church, and uh, he runs a landscaping company. And during the winters, he makes his money uh, removing snow from his properties. So imagine weatherman can accurately tell Jeff on Monday that it's going to rain on Thursday. This enables Jeff to assemble the the crews that he needs and and get his supplies uh, stocked and and ready to go. This would be very, very helpful. But but imagine now that Jeff found a weatherman that could tell him in June, the previous year, exactly the day and how much snow and where it was going to be happening in February of the following year. And And then think if he could tell it with certainty and then think if it actually happened exactly the way this weatherman said. Imagine the implications for Jeff's business, but also think about what that would tell Jeff about this weatherman. That's exactly what we witness here in this story. God talked about it many times over several years. They waited for it and wondered about it, and then it happened. God did it. Now, Herod, was not a good guy. But Herod had been called king of the Jews for about 40 years. 
mostly by the Romans, and he was very, very proud of this designation. So this pronouncement by the Magos must have been disturbing, right? But, but even though Herod was called king of the Jews, nobody ever mistook Herod, mistook Herod for the Messiah, nor called him that. That's partly why there's such buzz about this in Herod's court. I mean, there had been claims about messiahs for generations, but, but this one's a little different. Think of the circumstances here. Jesus isn't making any claim about himself at this point. He can't even speak. In fact, it's a group of foreign dignitaries, magos no less, who come in search of the king of the Jews. And they believe they have seen a sign from heaven which points to his existence. I mean, even if these dignitaries are a bunch of nut jobs, Herod has got to be disturbed by this news. Notice the Old Testament reference used here in verse 6. Uh, he, he quotes from Micah, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. That's Micah 5, 2. And that was one of the principal reasons that people usually connected the Messiah with the ruler of Israel. This is probably where Herod got the notion that this baby might have been the Messiah. So, you know, it's fascinating. The whole question of, is he the Messiah or isn't he the Messiah that dogged Jesus throughout his life, that didn't spring up at some point late in Jesus' ministry. That swirled around him from his birth. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Third truth that spills out of this passage, God uses the universe to make his son known and worshipped. Don't snooze on that. God uses the universe to make his son known and worship. It has become fashionable these days to announce births through social media. I looked a couple, of up, a couple up randomly over the past couple of weeks just because I was thinking about this. And my two favorite ones that I saw, I saw uh, this one couple had done a birth announcement. They had lined up two large, um, you know, like bobby pins, and then two small bobby pins next to it, which I guess were their two kids. And then they had a really small bobby pin inside of one of the big bobby pins. Clearly, mommy's pregnant. And then nine months later, they had changed it. Same announcement. They had the two small bobby pins, the two big bobby pins, and the really little bobby pin was laid across the two large bobby pins as if they were holding baby. I saw another one that was, I don't know, a little cruel. you got to hope that this kid doesn't grow up and see this. But a mom is holding uh, her newborn baby and smiling, standing right next to the kid. And there is older sister who looks to be about two years old, grabbing onto the edge of the crib, doesn't look happy at all. And there's a big sign on the crib that says eviction. (laughs) Well, anyway, God used a different method. He announced his son using the universe. So I want you to hear this, just just to kind of give us some context. This is Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display their knowledge. Again, don't snooze on this idea. God proclaims Himself through the universe, right? And Psalm 19 is not our only reference for that. But in this case, in in Matthew 2, God uses the universe to reveal, drumroll, Jesus. You can see where Christians get the idea that something godlike 
might have been happening in the life and person of Jesus. Anyway, this is why Paul makes the argument that people are without excuse for not recognizing God because God has written himself into the universe and he's written his son. This is the argument Paul makes in Romans 1, 18 through 20. Let me read this real quickly. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth. They don't miss it. They don't ignore it. It's not that they've never heard it. They suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His divine power, uh, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. In other words, God has written Himself into the fabric of the universe, so we have no excuse for not recognizing Him, and here, This part of his novel is about God the Son. So these Persian astrologers, these visiting magi, are probably not God-fearers, and yet somehow they interpret the stars to be indicating something of profound significance that was happening in their part of the world. This has always been a little mysterious to me how this happened, but here's what we know. We know that God uses the universe to make his Son known in worship. And this is God. God's great goal in all things, that his son would be known and worshipped. Key truth number four, worshiping Jesus in part means offering sacrificial gifts to him. Listen to verse 11. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. Okay, let me admit that I'm in danger of being uh, manipulative here, so be warned. For one thing, these guys offered gifts, sure, but, but that could have just been customary for a foreign dignitary to give to someone that they thought was going to be a king. So don't be manipulated by any preacher speak here. You can make an argument that this isn't really a key truth that flows out of this passage, but I honestly think this is part of what's going on in Matthew's mind as he looks at this account, part of what the, and part of what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. These are non-Jews, so they are strangers to the ways of God, at, at least in Matthew's mind, as far as he knows, and yet they worshiped the child and they brought him gifts. And Matthew, this is so startling for him, he details this out for us. He lays out the gifts for us to see. You can almost hear his wonder. And by the way, This has always been the biblical pattern. Worshiping people bring gifts to God. In part, this is just the natural human reaction. Uh, I don't know why I thought of this, and apologies in advance, but I thought of uh, Tom Jones, the the, um, wildly famous heartthrob pop singer from the 50s and 60s who, you know, by the time... Uh, the 80s rolled around. He was still singing, and he was, a, he was an old man at that point. I, so I, look, I read an article about Tom Jones this week, and at the heyday of Tom Jones in the mid-60s, people in Tom Jones' concerts would throw things at him. Wedding rings, other kinds of jewelry. Again, apologies, 
women's underwear. They would throw things at him as, a, as an act of, of worship because when your heart is overwhelmed like that, you, you, you want to give something. Well, God worshipers are the same. They bring gifts to God. This is, this is not because God needs our gifts. The Old Testament makes it clear that this process for, is for us, reminding us that I'm sorry about the women's underwear reference. I know that's all you have in your mind right now. Uh, reminding us that he is our, God is our real satisfaction. He's what we really need, not the things around us. Our souls need the giver, not the gifts. So if you'll indulge me, let me return to our end-of-year giving. And I was going to do a minute with this, but I'm not going to because you don't need it. I was going to start by wearing my fundraiser hat. I will not wear my fundraiser hat really this morning except to say uh, we plan for the end of the year and uh, giving and a lot of what we do at Gateway um, depends on that. All of what we do at Gateway depends on our generosity. And Gateway, thank you for your generosity. I want to put now on my pastor hat and say don't give to anything, especially to Gateway, because I ask or because you think gateway needs. Uh, God's work done God's way will not lack God's supply. Uh, give because you need to give, because it's a part of how we're wired, and because God is asking you to do so. Uh, key truth number five that spills out of the story of the Magi, worshiping Jesus involves recognizing the signs that point to his authority. Worshiping Jesus involves recognizing the signs that point to his authority. And I'm going to suggest to you that there will be signs this week, all week long, that will point to the authority of Jesus in your everyday life. And worshiping him involves grabbing those moments and recognizing them. Uh, we hinted at this earlier. The Magi recognized a sign. Eventually they worshiped. But notice... The religious authorities in Jerusalem missed it. Worshiping Jesus requires that we see the signs pointing to his authority. Do you know uh, who Banksy is? Banksy is a British street artist and activist who has become world famous for displaying his message art in unexpected public places, public parks, sidewalks, huge buildings, these things will just appear overnight. It's really amazing. Often, uh, he displays his art. The, building he, he, the buildings he uses are the sidewalks or the part of town that he draws it in. Sometimes that's part of the message of his art. And by the way, his identity is completely unknown, which I think adds to the mystique. Well, several years ago, in 2013, in, in an unusual Banksy move, uh, he set up a pop-up booth, boutique, of about 25 of his spray-painted canvases. He usually, again, paints on public buildings, but these were Banksy canvases on Fifth Avenue near Central Park on a Saturday, October 12th. Tourists were able to buy Banksy art for $60 per canvas. The booth was manned by an unknown elderly man who sat with the art for about four hours before a single customer stopped. 
Throughout the whole ordeal, the elderly man, and Banksy filmed all of this. Throughout the whole ordeal, the elderly man was yawning and eating lunch as people strolled by without a glance. The display, of course, was part of the art for Banksy. And he chronicled the whole thing on his, uh, a video he posted to his website. He, he said this about it. Yesterday, I set up a stall in the park selling 100% authentic original Banksy signed canvases for $60 each. Very, very few people even noticed the art. Literally hundreds of people passed by, perhaps thousands if you include the traffic. And very few, very few, even gave it a second glance. I mean, Banksy signed all of the prints. Right there in public for all to see, all you had to do was stop and notice. Interestingly, in July of 2014, two of those canvases sold at auction for $214,000. They're estimated today to be worth several times that. Jesus is priceless. He is what satisfies our souls. Worshiping him is the ultimate act of purpose and connection for us. But worshiping him requires that we recognize the signs that point to his authority. Be on the lookout this week. Number six, truth. Jesus is troubling to people who do not want to worship him. Herod was very troubled by this whole situation. You, you have to read the rest of Matthew 2 later to find out just how troubled Herod was. Jesus is, is so troubling to so many, and why? I mean, if he's just a good teacher who basically wanted to do good to others, why does he stir up so much trouble? There are at least two kinds of people who end up not worshiping Jesus. You may think of other kinds, but at least two kinds. The first is those who don't recognize him. We just alluded to those folks. The the part of those folks in our passage is played by the chief priests and teachers of the law. They heard about the visit of the Magi. They heard the unusual report. They, They even gave Herod the scriptural explanation that Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, but none of them went to check it out. Not as far as we know. And uh Many of us used to be people like this. Some of us know people like this still. Second category, a second kind of person who rejects worshiping Jesus is someone who feels threatened by him, who recognizes, maybe not consciously, maybe consciously, but maybe not, who recognizes that accepting Jesus and buying in is going to change everything and they they really don't want to change everything. Their life will be overturned by him. They don't want that. That part is played by Herod in our passage, of course. Jesus is troubling the people who don't want to worship him. And I pray that no one here is in that place because causing us to worship Jesus is God's ultimate goal. But if you are in that place, if Jesus disturbs you, I have to say I understand And I read a number of years ago an article by uh, Philip Yancey that I I think it helps me get my heart around this anyway. I want you to hear this. I I read this fascinating article by the author Philip Yancey who's written several best-selling books. And Yancey said that in 1993, he read a news report about a Messiah sighting in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, New York. 
Then in an article for Christianity Magazine, he, Christianity Today Magazine, he wrote about the, the feverish response of over 20,000 Lubavitcher Hasidic Jews who lived in that area, many of whom believed the Messiah was dwelling among them in the person of Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson. This is Yancey's description. Word of the rabbi's public appearance spread like flash fire through the streets of Crown Heights and Lubavitchers in their black coats and curly sidelocks were soon dashing toward the synagogue where the rabbi customarily prayed. The lucky ones connected to a network of beepers got a head start sprinting toward the synagogue the instant they felt a slight vibration. They jammed by the hundreds into the main hall, elbowing each other, even climbing the pillars to create more room. The hall filled with an air of anticipation and frenzy, normally found at championship sporting events, not a religious service. The rabbi was 91 years old. He had suffered a stroke the year before and had not been able to speak since. When the curtain finally pulled back, those who had crowded into the synagogue saw a frail old man with a long beard who could do little but wave, tilt his head, and move his eyebrows. No one in the audience seemed to mind, though. Long live our master, our teacher, and our rabbi, King Messiah, forever and ever. They sang in unison over and over, building in volume until the rabbi made a small gesture with his hand and the curtain closed. They departed slowly, savoring the moment in a state of ecstasy. Rabbi Schneerson, by the way, died later in June of 1994, and some of the Lubavitchers still await his bodily resurrection. Later in the article, Yancey confesses he was tempted to laugh out loud as he read about Schneerson and his followers, thinking, who are these crazy people, and who are they trying to kid? A, a, a nanogenarian mute messiah in Brooklyn? But, but then a sobering thought came to my mind, Yancey said. I am reacting to Rabbi Schneerson exactly as people in the first century had reacted to Jesus. A messiah from Galilee? A carpenter's kid, no less? He goes on. The scorn I felt as I read about the rabbi and his fanatical followers gave me a small glimpse of the kind of responses Jesus faced throughout his life. His neighbors asked, isn't his, his mother's name Marion? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? And other countrymen scoffed, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? His own family tried to put him away, believing he was out of his mind. The religious experts sought to kill him. As for the common people, one moment they judged him demon-possessed and raving mad. The next they forcibly tried to tr crown him king. Yancey concludes, it took courage, I believe, for God to lay aside power and glory and to take his place among human beings who would greet him with the same mixture of haughtiness and skepticism that I felt when I first heard about Rabbi Schneerson in Brooklyn. It took courage to endure the shame and courage even to risk descent to a planet known for its clumsy violence, among a race known for rejecting its prophets. A God of all power deliberately put himself in such a state that Satan could tempt him, demons could taunt him, and lowly human beings could slap his face and nail him to a cross. What more foolhardy thing could God have done? Jesus is troubling to those who don't want to worship him. We may even understand why, but we have to pray and press for their recognition. Because God's great goal is that his son would be worshipped, and worshipping Jesus 
requires that we recognize the signs pointing to his authority. And those signs are present. God uses the universe to make his son known. He is, after all, the long-awaited, predicted Jewish Savior and Messiah, and yet also the Savior of the whole world. So worshiping him is the aim of our lives. It, it, it is a fully immersive experience. Specifically, worshiping Jesus involved sacrificial giving. That's what we learned from the Magi. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we, today we, uh, we've gathered because we give our worship to you uh, willingly, gladly, not reluctantly. I pray, Lord, that today you would train our ears and our eyes and our hearts to see the signs that point to your authority. They've already been present in our morning. I pray that you would wake us up to your movement, to your activity in us and through us and among us. Lord, I pray that you would quicken and empower our hearts to spill out in praise and in gifts to you. You are God the Son, the long-awaited Messiah, and Jesus, today we honor you and brag about your name and your story. We brag about what you've done and the difference you've made in our lives. We think now, Lord, we think right now about that difference. Over the weeks or over the months or over the years, the difference that you have made in our story. How differently we'd be walking, how differently we'd be living now if you weren't part of us, if we hadn't found hints of soul satisfaction that we find in you. Thank you and we praise you. Lord, I pray uh, this week as we approach Christmas, we would be especially attuned to seeing signs of your movement, signs of your authority around us. And that we would steal moments, capture them, take moments to worship you. Because that's your great goal, Father. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Savior of the whole world. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.